So welcome to The Wife Who, the podcast where you're Louise and I'm Caroline and we talk about women who did something interesting. Mm-hmm. And you're going to treat us to a story first. Um, and I think we're even going to record the next episode right after this one um, where I'm going to do one. So that's exciting. Um, because we're in lockdown still. So we're in lockdown. <laughs> we may as well do more. We're doing this remotely still. <laughs> yep. How are you coping with lockdown, Lou? Just out of interest, everything okay? Yeah, I mean, we're one week in, so it's not become too repetitive yet, but it was hmm. my daughter's third birthday today, as you know. Yay. And mm. yeah, it's interesting. Birthday in lockdown for a three-year-old. No party. Mm. It was a lockdown birthday. It is what it is. True enough. Um, and I think if it was her fourth or fifth, it would be worse. I exactly. think at three, you probably get over it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The days days are kind of merging. And I, I've got to tell you, I'm really pleased to have um, this podcast to focus on and to learn things. It's like, you know, one of the one of those uh, dealing with coronavirus lockdown advice items is learn something new or start a new project and this has been really great for me definitely so. this has been been a big chunk of my week actually having this to oh, research really? yeah oh wow you're spending a lot of time well, on this there was huh? a lot to research with this this particular icon oh well maybe we should get straight into it i'm intrigued now would you like to start yeah i'll dive right in but it it does seem i accidentally chose an icon and that that shows something about my ignorance um that this person that I stumbled on, I thought, oh yeah, this looks, she looks kind of interesting. I'll talk about her. And then as I read about her, I was like, ah, okay. Oh, she's really famous. And she's really, really huge in the kind of history of feminism. And so I felt a certain element of shame that I didn't know about this person really. I've felt that a couple of times with the ones that I've looked at too. Oh, I I wonder if I've heard of her. Oh, I'm excited. Oh, well, you know, This podcast has shown me how ignorant I am, but it's also teaching me an awful lot. So even if it's just you and me talking to each other, I'm learning stuff here. Yeah. And that's the goal or part of the goal is to celebrate women and just to learn for ourselves. learn about them. So I hope I can do this woman justice. I feel the weight of this responsibility now on my shoulders. I'm dealing with a founding mother of feminism, Caroline. So. Wow. Have you heard of... Mary Wollstonecraft. Yes, I've heard of Mary Wollstonecraft and I know that she was a sort of a founding mother, if you want to put it that way, of feminism. But And she, I know that she was a writer. She had a lot of things to say. But I'll be honest, I really don't know that much about her. And I've always felt like I should. And it's one of those I've thought, I really should go back and find out more about her. And now I don't have to because you've I'll done do it the for work us. for Yay. you. But I have to admit, you know, I hear the name Mary Wollstonecraft and I think, oh, yes, you know, the, uh, the writer of Frankenstein. Uh, 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 of course, no, that no. was her daughter. <laughs> yes, that's right. Very so, shocking. That was the first thing I was schooled in with a, our Mary Wollstone. So for anyone out there, probably most of you out there have heard of this woman and know all about her, unlike me. Um, if there's a few of you listening who haven't, here's what I've learned. Oh, and also I need to add, there is an amazing Radio 4 podcast called In Our Time that dedicates Ooh. a whole episode to Mary. 
So if you want the really deep intellectual uh, discourse and discussion, then you need to listen to that one. It's all about uh, the philosophy. It's 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 brilliant. Um, this podcast between me and Caroline is definitely not that deep and definitely not that intellectual. So <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, facts and figures, guys. Not so much our bag, but uh, we try. <laughs> now, remember our conversation last week? We got into talking about how a lot of the women that we maybe talk about are women who've probably had access to education. And that yes. that's a major theme, isn't it? That um, it's the lucky ones that can go on and achieve and do aspirational things, probably because they're the rare ones to have had education. And that is all about Mary Wollstonecraft in terms of that's what she worked towards. It was all about the theme of education and improving it for women and talking about it, okay. debating about it. Mm. So, you know, her philosophy centred on this idea that women needed to be educated to the same standards as men in order to contribute to the world, that the world would be better for it. And that is something that is still dis being discussed now, isn't it? That, you know... Um, the economy would be better if more women were out in work. This is one of the arguments for trying to help women get out into work after maybe having children, that the economy would really benefit from it as well. Yes, although I do think we're quite good in the Western world these days at making sure that women have the same access to education, the same opportunities to be educated that men do during certainly the formative years. I mean, once you start you know talking 16 plus I suppose is a whole different set of questions isn't there yeah and it's maybe what happens after education in terms of work opportunities where, oh, yeah. where we're struggling now but yeah yeah hopefully women do have a much better access to education now than what Mary was experiencing back then because when yes. she was growing up she watched all the opportunities that her elder brother had in terms of his education and the, the kind of work that he could aspire to and she realized that it was really quite unjust that you know yeah. the gender that you were born into dictated this access to education yeah quite right and i think sometimes she you know we're, we're talking about the era of enlightenment when a lot of uh, things were being discussed about slavery and the rights of man and i think sometimes okay she... so what dates are we and i don't think we've even said yet what um so she was born april the 27th 1759 Okay, that's even earlier than I realised, actually. Yeah, a long time ago. And you know what? She was not born into one of these lovely, affluent families where, you know, everything everything was pretty good and she had a really supportive, say, mother or father who went on to, you know, help her spread her wings and fly. Her father was abusive. He squandered all of the family's money. He used to get drunk. He used to beat her. He used to beat her mother. And she recounts lying outside her mother's bedroom to try and protect her. So she had this desire to protect the women around her, try and protect them from injustice. She tried to save and rescue her sister from a violent marriage as well and helped her to flee. So she was born with this, this desire to try and help. But of course, yep, she watched her older brother receiving all this education. She probably experienced all of the abuse from her father. And she thought, we can do better than this. This is not a good start to life. So right. at 19, she, um, she struck out on her own and she worked in various different positions. She actually opened a small girls' school with two of her sisters and her friend Fanny. 
at the age of 25. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, for someone who's 25. Yeah. It was a financial struggle and unfortunately the school did collapse. Her friend Fanny ended up dying in childbirth. So the school Mm. at that point kind of, I think they just, because of the financial issues, because of the loss of Fanny, they decided to close that. But it was during that time that Mary's intellectual horizons expanded. So she met and befriended this guy called Richard Price. He was a fellow of the Royal Society. He was a committed advocate of political reform. And Price counted Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin among his clique of radical friends. So she discovers this forum for debate amongst this group of enlightened thinkers, grasping the opportunity to shape her own ideas. Wait, so is she allowed to be part of the... Because this is the same Royal Society, remember, that Margaret Cavendish was the first person to ever be a part of. And these guys are all involved in that. So is she allowed to be part of this I think she's mixing with them a lot and learning about the things that they're talking about and probably even allowed to contribute her own thoughts. Great. Not necessarily publish yet on those thoughts. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at, at the time... A woman's education basically involved being taught how to look pretty and to be charming. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The behaviour set that yields you a successful life is one of submission. It's one of aesthetics, of your appearance. It is not one (laughs) of education and critical thinking. No. And I've got a quote from Mary. She said, The plight of the average woman living during her time is to be forced into the role of a sexual slave. Oh, right. that's really damning. I mean, that's that's much worse than I was expecting. When you started saying, you know, women learning, it's very sort of to be decorative. I was thinking it's back to the how many times have we had the conversation? Needlework. I know, know exactly. Poetry, you, <laughs> singing, you're taught to sing, dancing. to embroider. Yeah. <laughs> but sex slave. I mean, that's, that's pretty like, radical for her to be saying that out loud. I know. And it's quite brave, right? Because... Mm. as a woman if that's what you are you know how dare you speak out against your position yeah and as i said you know she's born into this uh, period of time where the we've got the enlightenment starting to happen and so all these questions are being raised the rights of man the ethical implications of enslaving indigenous people on the grounds of race alone mm. so she asks why is there a double standard Women in this regard are nothing more than convenient slaves. And she says it degrades the master and the abject dependent. So she she recognises it's bad for, you know, both genders, women being these convenient slaves. So at the time, there's this this philosopher, John Jack Rousseau, and he actually writes in this... um, he writes about this distinction between how men should be edu- educated and how women should be educated. And he said there are huge differences between them, so they should be educated differently. So brace yourself. This is pretty sexist. Mm, okay. The whole education of women ought to be relative to men. To please them, to be useful to them, to make themselves loved and honoured by them. To educate them when young, to care for them when grown, to counsel them, to console them, and to make life agreeable and sweet to them. These are the duties of women at all times and what should be taught to them from their infancy. So this is what she's reading. 
And she thinks this sounds pretty similar to slavery. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I was just thinking if he could condense that into one sentence, it's... Slave. Women are there to be our bitches. Yeah. <laughs> they exist for us men only and should be educated in order to be good at that. Exactly. And mm. I think what she's trying to say is this system that keeps women as domestic and sexual slaves and the nature of the institution of marriage, it's like a tyrant. And tyrants want playthings and slaves. And it benefits the tyrants to keep women in the dark. And if they gave them the education and opportunities that men had, they wouldn't have the constant stock of slaves. And she says yep. something about this, it would be the end to blind obedience if you were to give women education. So she's, you know, she's really starting to grasp this, um, this rhetoric of... Um, Let's educate women. Let's kind of emancipate them from, you know, this this life of slavery. So is she writing this down in pamphlets or publishing that? Or is this just her internal opinions Perfectly at this point? Or what she's saying to these question, men? Caroline, because ah. after the failure of the school and she tries out for a year being a governess, doesn't get on with that at all. She decides to become an author. Radical oh. at the time, as we know, because few yep. women could actually support themselves by writing. Yep. But in 1792, she publishes A Vindication of the Rights of Women. So this wow, became brave. a best-selling Straight book. Straight in there. Yeah. Yeah. Whoosh. And she took the principles of the revolution to their logical conclusion. She outlined a vision of equality between the sexes. If women were afforded the same opportunities in education, she wrote they could contribute as much to society as men. And that made her name, that book. Yeah, isn't it crazy that saying such, something that to us nowadays is just so basic. And obvious, is, yeah. Yeah, and that it was a huge deal. It was like, I mean, it's the first thing she's published. So that is like, <laughs> welcome to the literary world with a bang. Um, and everyone is presumably shocked and astonished that a woman would dare to publish such heretical commentary. Yes, but I think there was probably a lot of um, what we might call reformists at the time. So men who okay. also understood this, that maybe did yeah, embrace yeah. it. And it did become this best-selling book. Excellent. Okay, so it's, ni it's 1793. She's a radical reformer. Where do, you, where do we think she's going to go at this point, Caroline? Somewhere enlightened, I assume. Yeah, and where do you think that is? Could it be Paris, oh, perchance? Oh, oui, Paris. <laughs> of course it is. Excellent. But let's just talk about how bloody brave she was to do this. So at this point, we're on the brink of war with France. Paris is a pretty dangerous place at the moment. France is in turmoil. And she's seriously warned against going. But she goes anyway. Wow. And three months after arriving there, Britain and France are at war. So mm. it's not exactly an easy life for Brits. And it was at this point she met this American guy called Gilbert Imlay. So I'm really not a fan of this guy from what I've read. Okay. We'll get on to that. Right, then. But let's just say this is probably her first serious uh, relationship. Okay. However, he was probably key to her survival in France. To protect Wollstonecraft from arrest, Imlay made a false statement to the US Embassy in Paris that he had married her. 
automatically making oh. her an American citizen. And some of her friends were not so lucky. Many, like Thomas Paine, were arrested, and some were even guillotined. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty tough time to be kind of uh, in Paris. Exactly. And, you know, British when they're at war with Britain. So everybody believes they're married and they have a child together. A daughter called Fanny, who is technically illegitimate because they're not married. Yeah, but I mean, everybody thinks they are, so it's fine, right? (laughs) It is and it isn't because when people discover they're not married, I think she becomes pretty ostracised from society at that point. Because, you know, people still have issues with that kind of thing. Oh, Anyway, Mm, it's a shame they had to find out. I know. (laughs) And going back to that relationship, it ends up devastating her. He basically tires of her and the domestic life. He leaves her more than once and she learns Mm. he's having affairs. But she becomes desperate to save the relationship. So at some point, uh, he moves to uh, England and she doesn't really want to go back there because she she feels that, you know, the France is the land of the uh, reformers. It's radical. But so Imlay goes back to England and she eventually follows him and she's trying to save the relationship. She loves him. She has, you know, a baby with him. Yeah. I think probably, probably the having a child together was probably the main thing. That must have been quite scary uh, in an age like that to be a single mom on your own, not even having been married Exactly. Um, yeah, I would be afraid. Yeah, we'd, yeah. we'd be afraid. So this is 1795. Yeah. So wow. yeah. we just have to think what it must have been like for women at that time. This doesn't mm. stop Mary from going on and doing pretty amazing things. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, somehow Imlay, he convinces her to go to Scandinavia for him. So a, sh- okay. a ship of his had been stolen by a Norwegian ship captain and he wanted compensation. So he basically wants treasure. So he sends Mary with the baby to go and get this compensation for him. What? So what? Why? She goes to Norway with her baby, just the two of them, by herself, okay. no male chaperone, to go on a money hunt for this dickhead boyfriend. That is so bizarre. So bizarre. Okay. And so brave. Right. Oh, bless her. So... She actually writes a book um, from this experience. And it led to her finest literary work. It's a travelogue of her Scandinavian journey told through an imaginary correspondence with Imlay. Letters written in Sweden, Norway and Denmark. And apparently it was her most popular book in the 1790s. It sold well, was reviewed favourably by most critics. And it... It even influenced romantic poets such as William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. That is awesome. And I'm so glad that this random trip that he made her go on led him to this actually had some, yeah, really good benefit for her as a person. It That's did. Awesome. However, although this book became this very successful thing, unfortunately, she tried to commit suicide twice. Oh, oh, what, on the trip with the baby? When she came back, she discovered that he uh, had still been having affairs, that this Mm. massive journey she'd gone on for him hadn't saved the relationship at all. Mm. So um, the second time she tried to commit suicide, 
she threw herself off Putney Bridge into the Thames and she was saved by the intervention of passing watermen. Now, I've got an amazing little digression for you here. It is such a good anecdote. So (laughs) we're just going to jump back in history to 1759. And there were these two guys, William Hawes and Thomas Cogan. They started a charity together, which we now know as the Royal Humane Society. But at the time of its inception, when they started it, it had quite a different name. Uh, It was called the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned, right? Okay. Yeah, that's pretty specific. Great. These guys that started it were, were doctors and they started this charity as advocates of what was a very controversial medical practice in 1759, resuscitation. So what they did was they they brainstormed how to resuscitate as many people as possible. And they came up with the idea of having this cash bounty for people recently drowned, for saving these people. So the idea was they would pay fishermen, boaters, people by the water. And if they came across bodies floating in the river, they would pay that person. They would have this kind of monetary reward for them to flip it over, flip the body and to try and bring that person back to life. So one of the bodies they pulled out of the water was Mary Wollstonecraft. (laughs) No. Amazing. Amazing. So I've got another podcast to thank that uh, for, and that's uh, Philosophize This by Stephen West. That's how I discovered that. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Um, And I'll have to definitely share that podcast with Chris, because it sounds like he's going to enjoy that. Um, And also this thing about the... um, the you know bodies in the river i i want to tell you that i saw a photograph you know the time bar in newcastle obviously um right next to there along the river tyne coming away from the famous newcastle quayside right there on the key front um at the bottom of where the free trade is now there used to be something called a dead house do you know about this no so the dead house is basically a building where all of the dead bodies that would float down the Tyne towards the sea <laughs> would be collected and brought into this house. Um, and To try I mean, and be identified. Remember. Yeah, well, basically just to pull them out of the river as well, because, of course, they're stinking up the river. <laughs> I mean, uh, I read a whole thing about it, and it was absolutely fascinating, and I can't recommend enough um, looking up sometime. I wish I could remember more details, but I think basically every river with a sort of... Um, mouth into the uh the sea had something called a dead house uh where they would do this now i'm wondering if the resuscitation thing was also part of this that you could get a reward for (laughs) stopping bodies going to the dead house i'd kind of like to know yeah there must have been a connection with the dead houses right yeah surely okay so mary gets saved by resuscitation amazing yeah thanks to these two guys that come up with this idea of resuscitation um mary one of our founding mothers of feminism was saved from suicide i wonder how she felt about having been resuscitated considering it was suicide i I, I can't picture presumably i wonder if she took it as a sign that you know she was meant to live yeah i hope so and, and this was her second suicide attempt. I think the f- first one was with laudanum, which I think oh. Imlay found her and must have helped, you know, prevent her actually dying. So this was the, the second suicide attempt. She, determined, but, you know, people were pretty determined to keep her alive as well. 
I'm glad they did. So, moving on from evil Imlay, she next becomes involved with a philosopher called William Godwin. And there's quite a famous story about how these two met. It was at a dinner party back in 1791. So that's before she's left for France and before she's published Mm -hmm. The Vindication. It's one year before she publishes The Vindication. So they're at a dinner party. Godwin had come to hear Payne, Thomas Payne, but he got stuck next to Mary for the whole evening. And apparently they argued all night long. She was (laughs) ranting at him and disagreeing with him on nearly every subject. Nice. Brilliant. But apparently in 1796, she renewed her acquaintance with him and they fell properly in love. And actually he says of that Scandinavian book, um, he wrote, if ever there was a book calculated to make a man in love with its author, this appears to me to be the book. So he Mm. really admired her. You know, it was like a meeting of minds. So they married but it was quite an unconventional marriage because they lived apart in different homes and they communicated through notes. Oh, wait. So was this because they were geographically quite far apart or was it just because they didn't want to live together? Yeah, it was just they were both street. unconventional, you know, spirits, really. All right. They didn't, Fair enough. I guess they didn't feel the need to be residing in the same home. There's mm. quite a sad ending to Mary. So in 1797... On the 30th of August, she went into labour and after about 18 hours, she gave birth to her second child, a daughter also named Mary, Mary. which we know as the Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, Mm -hmm. who went on to write Frankenstein. So there were minor complications which the surgeon mishandled. Apparently, Mary had initially wanted a midwife, well, she did want a midwife, and the midwife would have known what to do. Unfortunately, she suffered from acute hemorrhaging Infection followed, and 11 days later, Wollstonecraft died at the age of 38. How old I am. Same age as me. That's so sad. Two children. I know. But she gave birth to a daughter who went on to do amazing things for female writing, the history of female writing. She wrote the first ever sort of gothic fiction. Well, no, what was it? The first... I have to. I have to check my facts on this, but she she was a trailblazer herself, and I'm sure she would have been. Her proud. daughter was a trailblazer. She was a trailblazer. I mean, you know, this woman has quite the legacy. Unfortunately, her reputation was in tatters after Godwin, her husband, published a biography about her. So you know, he loved this woman, but he also had this aspect to him that he wanted to always tell, always be truthful, and not hide you know, parts of a life and not try and kind of sugarcoat it. So he wrote this okay. biography about her called Memoirs. And he was brutally honest about her life, about the, um, you know, the the fake marriage to Imlay and the mm. illegitimate child. And I guess, you know, he didn't judge anything of her life. He just told it as it was. But that did not go down well with readers and critics. So her reputation <sighs> was trashed after that for one century, two centuries. So he believed that he was portraying her with love, compassion and sincerity. But readers were just shocked that he would reveal, you know, these things about her. It's so sad that that's the reaction. I mean, what does it matter if she didn't have an official well, marriage certificate? Like We're looking uh, back, though, aren't we? In retrospect, like, oh, what's people's problems? However... In contrast, there was one writer of the generation after Wollstonecraft who apparently did not share the judgmental views of her contemporaries. 
Can you guess who this is, Caroline? What period are we talking about? I want to make a good mm. guess here. <laughs> Let's think the 1800s. Jane Austen. Yeah, I think so. So yeah. she never mentioned the earlier woman by name. She never mentioned Mary Wollstonecraft. But several of her novels contain positive allusions to Wollstonecraft's work. The American nice. literary scholar Anne K. Mellon notes several examples. In Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Wickham seems to be based upon the sort of man Wollstonecraft claimed that standing armies produce, while the sarcastic remarks of protagonist Elizabeth Bennet about female accomplishments closely echo Wollstonecraft's condemnations of these activities. Yes, what a hero. What a hero. Love it. Austen yes. clearly was able to read between the lines. Yeah, she was bright woman, was Jane Austen. The balance, funny too. The balance a woman must strike between feelings and reason in Sense and Sensibility follows what Wollstonecraft recommended in her novel Mary, while the moral equivalence Austen drew in Mansfield Park between slavery and the treatment of women in British society tracks mm. one of Wollstonecraft's favourite arguments. Interesting. Mm. And Virginia Woolf, apparently... Uh, describe Wollstonecraft as immortal. So she, yes. th there's a quote, she is alive and active. She argues and experiments. We hear her voice and trace her influence even now among the living. That was 1929. That's awesome. Uh, you know, we should try and find a way to bring Virginia into every single episode because yeah. <laughs> we did, I'm sure, in the last one. And um, of course, yesterday, the 29th of March was... Virginia Woolf's um, anniversary of her death, wasn't it? We had to put a post up about that. It was. You know, I can make one more connection for you, actually, with um, a on. previous um, pod podcast subject for us. So Ada Lovelace, right? So oh. Mary's first daughter, born to that awful Gilbert Imlay, Fanny, had an absolutely tragic life. So when I was when I started reading about you know Mary uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley and then Fanny, the Fanny story broke my heart. So imagine she loses her mum when she's three years old. Her stepfather William Godwin remarried a woman called Mary Jane Claremont. Mary Claremont had a daughter from a previous relationship called Claire Claremont, and you probably won't remember this, but Claire Claremont had an affair and an illegitimate daughter with. Lord Byron, Ada oh. Lovelace's father. So no, I would not have remembered that name. Was she the London chorus girl or something? No, no. So um. I don't. Did Claire do? She might have done actually. I think that's maybe one of the things that she did. There was at one point where you said that episode that um, he abandoned them because he was like, no, there's this other woman in London who's... Maybe maybe I made up that she was a I mean, I think he, I think he ended up <laughs> hating her, this Claire, because Claire oh. Clermont was pretty obsessed with him. What happened was Mary uh, Wollstonecraft Shelley, so Mary's daughter, and hmm. Claire Clermont ended up running off to live this kind of free love life with, um, with Shelley. So the three of them were shacked up together. Wow, for Blimey. for like a lot, a, a lot of years, um, and they followed um, Byron to Switzerland. The three of them. So there's three of them living in a house in Switzerland, and I think that's where Claire Claremont becomes pregnant. So, so Mary Shelley and Percy Bysey, or however you pronounce Shelley, and this woman Claire Claremont uh -huh. follow 
Byron, to Switzerland. who is a complete bastard, as uh-huh. we mentioned previously, to Switzerland. Yep. Oh, uh, no. I, I don't think Ma- Mary Wollstonecraft would have approved of this I don't think all. she would have either. So <laughs> her daughter pursues a kind of free love relationship. But Fanny is kind of caught in the middle. So um, William Godwin and his, you know, new wife, they're obviously, you know, they think this is scandalous. Fanny often has to go between the two. She really misses her sister, Mary. She does not get on with her stepmother. She's, she doesn't, she has such an awful life. She ends up committing suicide after this financial ruin of her father, after Mary and Claire Clement have left. And she's 22 years old. So these two daughters that Mary has, one of them goes on to obviously become a very famous author, but her other one is just abandoned. That that made me really wow. sad reading about um, her daughter Fanny. Yeah. It was like not what she'll have wanted for her. Not in the least. Good heavens. So Yeah, sorry to end on a low note about poor Fanny. Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that her mum tried to commit suicide twice and... Yeah, and I think I think it was often um, thought that she took a lot after her that, that this kind of depressive mood that she got into. They kind of thought, yeah. oh well, just like her mum. Yeah, but who can blame someone, a woman, for being depressed at a time where you're intelligent enough to see that everything is, it's just inequality is the air that you breathe at a time like that, and it must have been hard. And then for her daughter to not have her mother to back her up. Exactly. Yeah. Disappointing. Mm. And I think recently there has been a push to try and get a monument for Mary Wollstonecraft erected oh. in London. Nice. There was a, a campaign group who were trying to raise money from it. There was some statistic, like the uh, number of monuments in Britain was something like 90% male. And they thought it was scandalous there wasn't one of Mary Wollstonecraft. So I think finally they did raise the money at the back end of 2019. So at some point in Britain, we are going to have a monument to her. Oh, I can't wait for that. I can't wait to see a picture of it. I hope they uh, do her justice. So do I. We should we should visit that monument once it's erected. Awesome. So what would you say is... So her legacy now is really... It's this one book in particular, that her first one, this The Vindication of Women, was it called? Exactly. And that women should have access to education like men, that they should yeah. be the equals, that they are not just convenience slaves. They were really progressive ideas back then. Yeah, I bet they were. And I, th- I feel like loads of people, even now, um, use that idea comparing sort of women's... Um, well, women and slavery, essentially, um, it, it's really not the same thing when you think about, you know, the black slavery situation back then. Um, I, it's not quite the same. But I do think it's a theme, isn't it, that a lot of the time there are these parallels drawn. And if she was the first one to sort of do so publicly in writing and then yeah. lots of people read it and then this message got out there um, that women are, I don't want to say... What's, what's the right word? Suppressed? That's not quite the right word, is it? But deserve more, deserve to be educated and that they can do more. Um, I feel like a lot of the women we talk about on this podcast have something to thank her for. <laughs> I agree, which is why I was shocked that I'd not really learnt about her till now, that I, yeah, it took same. me to teach myself about her. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for covering her. Um, I'm really, really glad that we learned about her tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. 
So should we draw this one to a close and go and um, have a little wine break and then think about recording the next one? What do you think? Good idea. And we almost forgot to close the episode without including the fact that you can find us on social media and our website, of course. And please do. Um, For last week's uh, Hilda Matheson episode, uh, I've done a blog post, which you might be interested in reading if you enjoyed the content of the the episode. I have on our website, www.thewifewho.com forward slash blog. We do have a blog there and I try to upload some stuff about each of the episodes and on there I've put some more info about our um, research into Hilda Matheson and particularly that stuff about the BBC website which was kind of an interesting journey Um, so please do look that up you can also find us on Instagram we are the underscore wife underscore who and of course we're on Facebook we've even created a Facebook group which we would love for you to join us and send us suggestions anything that you think we might enjoy reading Ace, okay, thank you so much and cheers. And imagine a fake clink sound here. Clink. Cheers. Bye, guys. (laughs) Bye.